Welcome to the Period Story Podcast, the podcast where we get behind some of the myths and misconceptions about periods. We chat with women about their period story, their first period, their journey ever since, and we open up a conversation to help break taboos and stigmas around menstruation. I'm your host, Denise Brothers. I'm a yoga teacher and registered nutritionist specializing in women's health, hormones, and the menstrual cycle. I'm also the author of You Can Have a Better Period, the book Publishers Weekly calls an empowering debut, an informative, refreshing take on women's health. It's available from Amazon, Bookshop, and anywhere else you purchase books. January is Cervical Cancer Awareness Month in the US and the UK, and so I'm so pleased to share my conversation today with Molly Broche, a woman's health nurse practitioner and associate director at BD, and we talk all about cervical cancer, the causes, the symptoms, the risk factors, why cervical screening is such an important prevention tool, how to empower yourself if you feel nervous about going to have a screening, and what happens if abnormal cells are found in the cervix. Hi, Molly. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. I'm so excited to talk to you, hear your period story, and then talk more about cervical cancer because it is Cervical Cancer Prevention Month and Awareness Month in the US and the UK. But first, let's get into the story of your very first period. Can you tell us what happened? Hi, Lenise. Such a pleasure to be on today. Thanks for having me. Um, So when I think about the story of my first period, um, what comes to mind is middle school. um, And I went to a middle school that had recently adopted a policy where we had to wear these light colored khakis. So I was constantly on edge for when um, I was going to be blessed with my first period, um, just because there was all this unknown about, um, you know, is it going to happen when I'm walking down the hallway or uh, something like that? Luckily, um, it did happen at school. I remember that clearly. And um, unfortunately, I think the bathroom situations at schools is not the best. Um, I did come prepared with a pad in my backpack. So um, accidents were avoided. Um But I will say it was still like this sense of shock. I mean, I think I had learned about periods through family, friends, reading, not really through anything educational. But when it actually comes, I think there is this sense of shock. And you're like, how long is this going to last? Am I going to make it through the week of wearing my khakis uh, without an accident? Um, So yeah, I I would say shock was probably the number one emotion associated with it. (laughs) And so you said you were in middle school. So that Mm -hmm. is like about 12, 13? Uh, Yes, exactly. Uh, 13 years old. I believe um, I, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. It was seventh grade. Right. Okay. So I would assume that you were kind of maybe amongst like the middle of the pack of your friends getting their period. And so you said that you had some education through family, through friends. So you knew what was going to happen. And what's really interesting is that you were prepared. You had the pad in the backpack. So how did that come to be? How did you, how did you have that sort of preparation? Um, I, I think from, um, a kind mom who, you know, 
made me prepared. I had an older sister as well, too, a sister four years older than me. So I had a clue of what what you had to have ready. Um, uh, I think I still worried, like, is this the right size? Again, going back to those darn khakis, like, is this still going to protect me so that I'm not out in the hallway with a stain on my pants? Um, uh, I think what I think, too, I mean, there's a lot of uniforms, I mean, I would say both in sports and in school that are not female friendly. I mean, I know this has become a topic in the sports world too, with like white shorts for female athletes and things like that. I think there's never any thought to like these poor girls who, um, you know, are coming into this new stage in their life and trying to be as prepared as they can, and they're not set up for success. So, um, yeah, but education was, I think, a combination of family and like some reading I had done, even in like fiction books where uh, like Judy Bloom and things like that, where <laughs> um, where she sort of refers to, to first period. Yeah. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. They were I all read, such good books. Yeah, yeah. I read that as well. Yeah. yeah. What you said about um, uniform and what you're wearing having such an impact of your experience of of having a period is so interesting because last summer there was a whole conversation about wearing whites at Wimbledon and that's what it was okay yeah and there are actually um, football or soccer teams that have actually changed the color of their shorts because they've saying like even like the mental side of wearing white when you have your period it's that paranoia am I going to leak and I'm just wondering because you it's interesting that you brought that up uh, as part of your first period story whether wearing those light khakis did that kind of affect how you felt about yourself during your period was there kind of paranoia about leaking and then how did that carry through um, the way you thought about your period Yes. I mean, it definitely, I, I would say paranoia as well as just what I'm realizing now is probably like anxiety. I don't even think I probably knew as much about that term when I was in medical school. And it wasn't just for myself. It was, you know, for other female and girl colleagues as not colleagues, but schoolmates as well too. Um, because I think the issue in middle school and elementary school, you have to ask permission to go to the bathroom. So you cannot constantly be going. So I, I mean, there were terrible situations where, um, you know, people needed to go and take care of things. And, you know, teachers would say, oh, you just left like 20 minutes ago. This didn't happen to me personally, but I just remember with um, friends of mine and people I knew in my class and it just was so scary uh, because you sort of felt like you were out of control of the situation. And if you're sitting there, things are just going to get worse. Um, so yes, it definitely uh, provokes some paranoia and anxiety. And did, like, if I were able to wear whatever I wanted, darker pants during that time of month, would have been better. I think we heavily relied myself and like the other girls on the fact that we had dark navy tops, um, often like cardigans, and tying that around the waist. I think I preemptively did that like every time <laughs> to the bathroom anyway. I mean, it's it's 
it, it's quite sort of crazy to think of now, honestly. You got your first period when you were 13. You were in middle school. Um, and then what was the experience of the period actually like? Was it painful? Was it heavy? Um, and then did that carry through to the rest of your teen years? So I luckily um, will not say, I mean, like sort of throughout my whole life, but in middle school and uh, my teenage years too, it was not super terrible. Um, that's at least something I did not have to deal with. I did run um, cross country in high school. I didn't do any sports in middle school, but um, it, it, I don't remember it really making me have to take any time off of school of significance. Um, so I will consider myself quite blessed there because, again, that was not the experience for um, a lot of uh, my friends. And I felt terrible for them. And again, I mean, sort of related to that whole, you can't just get up and leave whenever. I mean, it's really hard to miss school. I mean, even in middle school, I was sort of in a rigorous academic program and taking, you know, four to five days off of school every month is just not acceptable. But so many girls were in so much pain that they really legitimately needed to. Um, so, yeah, again, luckily, personally, um, I I was dealt a pretty good hand. Yeah, that that's really interesting because, you know, carrying on the thread of like being a female athlete, you hear about so many female athletes losing their periods mm-hmm. or their periods getting in the way of them participating in the sports that they want to participate in. Um, but, yeah, as you say, you were quite, quite blessed. With, yeah not having any issues with with your period. Um, And then did that just kind of continue in just having a really easy period? I mean, I I think some months definitely worse than others. I definitely get the, um, you know, premenstrual symptoms ahead of time, like the moodiness and all of that. But once it actually comes, sometimes I think I'm like relieved because I'm like, all right, I can expect what's coming. So Yeah. yeah, I again, after, and I mean, being in the women's health field myself and personally hearing all these stories, I think that's also sort of opened my eye to, wow, I, I had it pretty good. Yeah. And so it's interesting now that you do, you do work in women's health, you're a women's health nurse practitioner. And I'm just curious because a lot of people who work in this space, they tend to have been inspired through either a personal experience or an experience of someone quite close to them. So what made you decide to get into this field? Um, To be quite honest, my decision to enter women's health um, revolved around my nursing school experience where um, I worked on a labor and delivery floor actually with the you know delivery of babies and all of that. And I absolutely love that. So I sort of entered in another angle, which was like the obstetrics angle, which um, was fascinating. And again, um, that's an area of the hospital where everybody thinks it's just, you know, happy little babies and happy moms. And there is so much more that goes on there. There is so much more complexity. And I think I realize that in nursing school. And I I mean, it's such a special time in people's lives, but it's actually, you know, very uh, prone to to complications and things like that. So um, that was the area that I really wanted to go into after uh, 
being in nursing school. Yeah. And then you then also kind of moved into gynecology. Oh, absolutely. Well. Exactly. Um, and to be honest there, I mean, my passion there really has been the cervical cancer screening. Um, like since the start, I think I have been fascinated like through my teen years and into adulthood about sort of the lack of knowledge about what actually happens during a pap smear, what we're actually testing for, all of that, um, and the ability to be able to educate on that and make sure that people are getting the right testing, the you know vaccination, everything there has been, um, again, very eye-opening. Um, and I, I think I like addressing fields where it sort of seems like there is a need for more education. Yeah. Before we get into um, the discussion around cervical cancer, I'm just curious about your nursing background because you have a master's in nursing and then you're now studying for a doctor of nursing degree. And I've never, I've never (laughs) heard of that before. Can you, can you just talk a little bit about that? Because I think that, you know, on this podcast, we do talk a lot about, you know, different career paths as well as talking about periods, um, can you just talk about you know your movement through this space? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I will say, even before you know nursing, I originally went to school for molecular biology. So, like, I've always had a love for like science and research in general too. Um, and while I was working in the research field, like immediately post college, I started volunteering in a hospital, and that's when I decided, okay, I would like to switch paths and move more into a direct patient care setting. Um, So uh, at Hopkins, they have this one-year accelerated nursing program, which was great. So um, I had my bachelor's in biology, and two years later, I went on to get this bachelor's of nursing. Um, From there, again, nursing school is sort of where I found that niche in the women's health um, labor and delivery world. So I worked as a nurse um, for several years in in different labor and delivery uh, units and women's health units. Um, While there, I think myself and a lot of other nurses decide, well, what's the next step here? And that is generally a nurse practitioner. So um, the rules in the U.S. are sort of different state by state, but nurse practitioners generally have a lot of autonomy in how they can practice. Like um, my license was in Virginia, now it's in Maryland, but I could prescribe medications, um, really treated like an independent professional. Um, and again, that was all in the women's health world, sort of split between uh, prenatal obstetric care and then gynecological care. Um, and actually at once I started working in the medical diagnostics world at BD, I made that decision to enter a doctorate of nursing practice program. Um, you know, one of the nice things about working in a medical diagnostics uh, the, uh, company, they actually help reimburse some of the costs because this is sort of furthering my education and should help my career at BD as well, too. The, the main difference, you still are certified as a nurse practitioner, like through your state, it's the same way. I think the doctorate of nursing practice, you're really, it's a part of the um, doctorate program. I'm sort of entering that step right now. You work on a quality improvement program. So you look for some sort of deficit in the healthcare system, ideally solution to that. So not quite like a PhD with a full dissertation, but um 
there's multiple semesters where you spend sort of developing the program, working with a site, and then sort of wrapping it all up with um, a final publication of sorts that can be presented at conferences and things like that. Um, so it's sort of like the capstone of the nursing career would yeah. be that doctorate of nursing practice. That That's really interesting because I don't know if there's something, anything similar over here in the UK. Okay. I may be wrong, but I just, I find it so fascinating the way you described uh, being a nursing practitioner. Um, and it seems very different to the way that nurses are viewed over here. It's more kind of like entering the kind of same space mm-hmm. as a doctor in terms of being able to prescribe medication, diagnose. Um, so that's really, that's really interesting. So yeah. talking all about one of the passions that you described, so cervical cancer. So cervical cancer awareness month and prevention month is January. So this is a really timely conversation. Um, can you just talk a little bit about firstly, what cervical cancer is and some of the risk factors. Absolutely. Um, And yes, I think this is like such an important time to be having this conversation because exactly um, Cervical Cancer Awareness Month, January. Um, So cervical cancer, um, obviously cancer of the cervix, the main cause of cervical cancer, though, and this is still a fact that's not known by a lot of women, virtually all cervical cancer is caused by a virus, um, which is different than a lot of other cancers. And that virus name is called human papillomavirus. We can refer to it as HPV, easier term. Um, and what's interesting about HPV, though, is HPV is overwhelmingly <clears throat> common in the both male and female population. So um, I think, you know, CDC has said at some point, basically somebody probably has had an HPV infection um, and might not have even known about it. Maybe they were too young to be tested. Um, We do now have the HPV vaccine that prevents HPV. Now, if you get the vaccine prior to exposure um, and HPV is transmitted through uh, sexual contact, um, But essentially, HPV has to persist year after year after year to lead to cervical cancer. So one of the reassuring things about cervical cancer is through a combination of vaccination and screening, if you get the vaccination and or go in for regular screenings, your doctor or your nurse practitioner, your healthcare provider is likely going to catch any pre-cancer before it even has the chance to become cancer. Um, And I think, again, that is cervical cancer is an awful disease. I mean, in the US, I know 4,000 women die um, every year, 14,000 women are diagnosed. So unfortunately, some are falling through the cracks and not getting that screening. Um, But I would say this is one of those diseases that um, unlike some of those cancers that sneak up suddenly, like pancreatic cancer, things like that, through screening and vaccination really can be prevented. And I would say in our lifetime, hopefully eliminated. Mm. And if someone's listening to this and thinking, okay, that's really interesting, but what are the some of the symptoms that I should be looking for? What would you what would you say to them? What what are the symptoms of cervical cancer? 
Got it. So with cervical cancer itself, symptoms are often abnormal vaginal bleeding, pelvic pain, um, discomfort during intercourse. But then, so I would say there's probably three most common. There's often no symptoms at all, though, which is why the screening is so important. We really don't want women to get to the stage where I'm going into the doctor because I'm having this awful pain and I'm having bleeding. The number one way to prevent this from ever even getting to that stage is to go in for your regularly scheduled uh, cervical cancer testings at the intervals recommended um, by guidelines or by your practitioner. Um, it, because again, then then you won't run into that. But those symptoms I've described are unfortunately some of those late-term symptoms. And again, that is unfortunately why we still have those deaths and still have those diagnoses because you know, due to disparities in care and lack of access to care, a lot of women are forced to just go to their practitioner once they've reached that stage. It's really interesting you mentioned some of the symptoms that you mentioned because those overlap with symptoms exactly. of, of other conditions like fibroids, endometriosis, adenomyosis. You could have pain. You could have irregular bleeding. And something that I think will be challenging for a lot of women is that they're struggling to get even a diagnosis for those conditions. And then to say, okay, well, actually, these might also be symptoms of cervical cancer. That's, that's tricky, because we do, you know, there's, there's a lot of conversation around the gender pain gap, the gender, gender credibility gap. And so I think, this awareness of the symptoms is really important. But what would you say to someone who, you know, they are already having issues getting a diagnosis or having even having a proper conversation with their doctor about what they think might be happening to them and then adding kind of the potential of cervical cancer into the mix? What would you say to someone about that? Absolutely. And you're absolutely right. The symptoms do overlap a lot. I would just say when they go in to see their practitioner, um, you know, if they're not aware if they've had a pap smear or cervical cancer screening within the last, I'd say, you know, one to three years, um, like say they're switching to a new provider, um, I would encourage the woman to say, could I please be screened for cervical cancer today using an HPV test? Because I know that HPV is the number one cause of cervical cancer. And I'm concerned that this could be a cause of my symptoms. I think we really, um, we would hope that the doctors would offer and know this, but it's, you know, you don't always have a patient's full records and know what happened in the past. So um, I do think sometimes you have to be an advocate for um, getting that testing done. And I encourage women and I think they would have a great response and they would get the testing done. And again, ideally that would be done with um, HPV testing, which is the most sensitive test to screen for cervical cancer. And then they could have that reassurance that, look, these symptoms are probably being caused by something else. And we need to go through that um, 
process of looking for exactly as you mentioned, endometriosis, fibroids, things like that, that can also cause um, some of those symptoms. So just talking more about screening, because, you know, that's a way to be proactive about your health. This is a topic that I find personally quite interesting because I just received a letter from the NHS, so the National Health Service in the UK, um, advising me that I am due for my cervical screening. And so they say that in the UK, you need to have a test every three years if you're between 25 to 49, and then every five years if you're between the ages of 50 to 64. So can you just talk a little bit about the process of, so is cervical screening in the UK? I know that some people, I grew, I'm Canadian, so I grew up with it being called a pap smear. Mm-hmm. Yep. Can you just talk about that process? Like, So what should someone, if they're going to have this done, what should they expect when they, when they go for that, that screening? Yeah, absolutely. I am. So impressed that um, you know the NAH, NHS has that system of sending letters of reminders. I wish we had that in the U.S. I think that would really help because I think some people legitimately do forget they're due for a screening since there are longer intervals now. Um, just as sort of a point of comparison, um, in the U.S., ACOG and USPSTF, which is the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, ACOG's American College of uh, OBGYNs, we actually, they recommend screening starting at age 21. So um, at age 21, women would have a pap test. And then starting at age 30, um, and the pap test would be every three years. And then starting at age 30, 30 in the U.S., you have something um, called either a primary HPV testing where you go in and actually have an HPV test in the office, and then they run the PAP if there's any abnormalities in the HPV test, or there's co-testing done, which means you do PAP and HPV together. But let me break that down. So when you go into the office, um, the the term PAP... Um, you know, it's it comes from uh, Dr. Papa Nicolau, who actually invented this technology that um, really has transformed the world and reduced cervical cancer screening or cervical cancer deaths um, a ton since its you know invention earlier in the 1900s. Um, but when we think about a PAP, that is the actual process where you're in the office. The doctor is actually collecting a sample of cells directly from your cervix and looking to see if there's any changes in those cells that make them worried that there might be some sort of cervical precancer going on. An HPV test is actually uh, run directly off of that pap smear test that uh, the doctor collects. So they're just going into their um, electronic medical record system or their paper requisition form and requesting that the lab test for HPV. Um, and HPV, it's uh, usually tested by either DNA or RNA. So we're actually looking at you know molecular material. And again, since this is that virus that causes cervical cancer, the thought is we want to look for the actual virus. So, you know, you're going to be more worried if you see abnormal cells and a positive HPV test versus seeing abnormal cells and a negative HPV test. Because, you know, on a pap, you can pick up 
even though you're looking for cervical cancer, you can pick up all sorts of other things too. I mean, I've had reports come back that say, you know, candida, which is like yeast is present or trichomonas, which again are things it's good to know about, but that's not actually the purpose of the PAP. The purpose of the PAP, the purpose of cervical cancer screening is to look for the disease um, that could subject a woman to precancer or cancer. Um, So generally, so yeah, you, you know, you go into the office, they're going to collect a PAP um, if appropriate. Um, And I think we're getting to the point um, in the U.S. where HIV testing is being incorporated into more and more women's screenings, which is great because again, HIV testing, in my opinion, and that primary screening, that is the right way to test for cervical cancer because you are doing the more sensitive tests first. Um, you are looking for the HPV, which is causing most of the disease. And then what will happen is um, if any of those results come back abnormal, your healthcare provider will likely give you a call Um and they'll do, if necessary, something called a colposcopy. And that's actually considered a diagnostic procedure. And that's when the healthcare provider takes a better look at the cervix um, to see if there's any cells they want to remove. And they're able to send those cells to a lab. And um, once in the lab, they can sort of grade them to say, oh, this is normal or this is um, you know, a low-grade, high-grade lesion. And then at that point, the decision can be made sort of on that grading, whether we're going to give the patient time to see if it clears on its own or whether um, it's a far enough progressed lesion that they'll do something called an excisional procedure and remove the lesion. Right. You get the, the cervical screening done. And if you get a report back that there are abnormal cells, it's not a cause for panic because exactly. there's a kind of scale that you're operating in where, it, as you say, they might just clear up on their on its own, or you know there might be further procedures to be done. But it's not a cause for panic. Exactly. Um, but this is where I do want to mention having extra information about like what type of HPV you're testing positive for really adds to, you know, your doctor's ability to predict predict that risk for cervical precancer. Um, And there are tests, HPV tests now that have this technology called extended genotyping. So BD does offer one. It's called the BD on Clarity HPV assay. Um, It's an FDA approved test. It's CE marked as well. Um, And what tests like that do is they look for um, more than five different types of what we call high-risk HPV. Um, And high-risk HPV is the type of HPV that is uh, directly associated with cervical precancer and cancer. So by knowing which type of HPV you test positive for, so I will say types like HPV 16 and HPV 31 are particularly high risk. Knowing that information um, can really help your healthcare provider better manage the situation that's going on with you versus just having Um, We call it partial genotyping, which is um, some tests only look for two different types of HPV and then a big group of HPV um, separately. Um, But again, this is empowering women to 
ask for tests with, you know, more information um, because they are available. And I think um, it, it really helps make that decision about whether you need further diagnostic procedures. Yeah. So your a lot of the information that you've shared will be really helpful for someone who is already feeling quite empowered when they go and speak to their GP or healthcare provider. But interestingly, in the UK, only one in three women take up their invitation to their cervical screening. So what would you say to someone who is nervous about going to have this done? They, you know, they've heard, oh, it's really uncomfortable or, you know, it, it, it hurts or they just have this kind of nervousness about going to the doctor, what would you say that would help them, you know, take that, that book in the appointment and then feel really empowered when they get there? So you bring up such a valid and great concern there. And I just sort of wanted to um, reiterate the findings that you talked about with um, survey findings from the Harris poll that um, BD actually just conducted among 800 American women. Um, and in our survey, um, in terms of knowledge on certain aspects of cervical cancer screening, 80 81% of women are unaware of what age um, or how often they should get a pap test or an HPV test. So again, um, very true that there is this um, you know, knowledge gap and also that people are not going in for screening. Um, so... What some ways to sort of address that hesitancy in going to the doctor's office? One of the programs that we're hoping to have in the U.S. and that currently exists in company or in, in countries like Australia, New Zealand, Denmark, and actually many parts of Europe is something called HPV self-sampling. So that would be um, where women are actually given a kit to collect a HPV sample at home, and then they mail it back um, to their doctor. It's, you know, processed. And in the case that they're HPV positive, that would um, warrant them going back into their healthcare provider for um, additional testing. But that is one of the future solutions um, uh, to this issue. I would say, unfortunately, right now, in terms of, you know, fear of of going to the practitioner or not wanting to go in. I mean, that is a real concern, which is why we are trying to come up with solutions like self-sampling to reduce some of that. You know, a lot of people are in geographic regions where they can't even access um, PAP and cervical cancer screening testing easier too. And now that we know, you know, HPV is this number one cause of cervical cancer, if we can just test for that at home and bring the right women in, that helps. But unfortunately, again, I completely understand. And there's, it is hard to, um, you know, if somebody really doesn't want to go into the OBGYN office, there's probably little you can say to convince them. Hence, programs like self-sampling becoming more relevant in the future. So what if it's not, they're, it's not that they don't want to go in, it's that they're just nervous. You know, they've nervous. had a negative experience with their GP, you know, something I hear a lot is they feel really dis dismissed or diminished 
when they talk to their GP or their healthcare practitioner about what's going on with their bodies. And they're just thinking, well, I don't want to go in and have another experience like that. What can you say? What would you say that that might give them a little bit of reassurance? Um, Very good question. I mean, I think in a situation like that, I mean, and I'm not sure easy it is to switch providers, but I think there are very caring providers out there that are willing to listen to patients. Um, Unfortunately, it may take, you know, trying out a couple, um, but I would encourage people, hopefully, answer a couple of bad experiences. Don't scare somebody away completely from getting cervical cancer screening. Because again, this is like, you know, one of the, I mean, asymptomatic screenings, you really can completely reduce your risk of this precancer progressing to cancer. So um, just encouraging women that the benefits should outweigh the risks um, and trying to find that correct provider that will listen to you and listen to your concerns because might be hard, but I, I do think they exist out there. Um, and there's, you know, truly medical professionals that really want to help people. So really, you just think of this as something that is a proactive way of supporting your health, especially if with cervical cancer, is there a kind of family genetic risk? So can this be passed on through families or is this solely via the HPV virus? So that's a very, very good question. So cervical cancer screening, really 99% of the time is caused by that HPV virus. There's really no um, genetic or family link. Women who have had a family member who has had cervical cancer often are more motivated patients to go in and get cervical cancer screening, Um, but there is really no direct genetic link like what we see with um, breast cancer and some of the other genetic-related cancers. So um, I guess that can be reassuring to some. Um, That's another reason, though, why getting the HPV vaccination at an early age combined with going in for your regular cervical cancer screenings is so important because if you get that vaccine that prevents against HPV before you are exposed to HPV um, in your first sexual encounter, your risk for cervical cancer is very, very low. You don't have to worry that you might be carrying some gene from your mom that's causing cervical cancer or something like that. Um, That's a great question, though, because I think that is a common fear. And I will have patients come in and say, oh, my mom had cervical cancer, so I'm very worried I'm going to get it because that is the case with a lot of other cancers. Okay, so there's no there's no family or genetic link, but that that link does call people, women to be more motivated to have the screening and be proactive about um, about that the risk. That's really interesting. So it, because this is Cervical Cancer Awareness Month, I think it's really important that we're having this conversation, raising awareness of not only cervical cancer, but the screening and prevention. If there is one thought that you would like to leave listeners with amongst everything that you've shared, what would you want that to be? 
So I would just say that cervical cancer is preventable. It is a cancer that we can eliminate in our lifetime if we focus on cervical cancer screenings um, and just raise awareness that HPV testing is a critical part of cervical cancer screening. It's really going to help assess that risk for cervical precancer before it progresses to cancer. So when talking to your clinician, if you are, you know, over the age of 25, an HPV test, ideally one with extended genotyping that looks for more types of HPV should be a part of your cervical cancer screening um, uh, appointment. So I just really want to empower women that, um, to know the cause of cervical cancer, which is HPV, and really to not be scared to make sure that when you go into the office, you are being tested in the right way so that we make sure that you never get this highly preventable cancer. Great. I think that's really important. And so if you're listening and you're thinking, oh, when was the last time I had my cervical screening that's a sign that you need to call your doctor, right. get one booked in. It's really easy. It's really fast. It's not painful. Exactly. Um, th- actually, that's a one, one last question. It <laughs> it just feels like a little scratch, doesn't it? Correct. I mean, I, I don't want to minimize different people's reports of discomfort, though. I mean, there's, you know, various ways that there can be discomfort presented with an exam like that. I mean, you know. Yeah psychological. I mean, it's it's an invasive exam, so it should not be painful, but I do want to recognize that, I mean, that can be a barrier to some women, again, which is why we're working really hard to come up with these solutions like self-collection so that everybody with a cervix feels comfortable going in to get cervical cancer screening um, because there is a entire population that needs cervical cancer screening. And again, we want to address everybody who needs that. Yeah. Okay. But again, it it should not be brutally painful or anything like that, but I do recognize that it is not the most pleasant thing, but if, you know, in the back of your head, you're just thinking by going in here, if I have anything going on, any small precancer, I'm going to catch it. It's not going to get to that state of being cancer. So I'm doing a really good thing for my body and to to, to prevent a um, more serious issue from occurring. Great. Thank you so much for coming onto the show today. I think this is a really important conversation. It's very topical. Um, and if even one person listening books in their screening, that is a success. So thank you so much again. Thank you, Lenise. I really appreciate the time today. For more inspiring conversations, head over to periodstorypod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you want help with your menstrual or hormone health, email me on hello at eatlovemove.com to set up a free 30-minute hormone health review. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tag us, come say hi, and send in your requests for who you'd like to see on the show on Instagram and Twitter on at periodstorypod or email us at hello at periodstorypod.com. I'm Lenise Brothers, and you've been listening to Period Story. Thank you so much for listening.